Go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. While you're turning there, I want to just share a couple of things that are going on here at the church with you. First is that, as you can see right here, we're going to be celebrating baptisms later this morning in our service, so we're very excited about that. We were able first hour to see uh, six dear people from our church get baptized, and this service we'll have a few more, and so we're very excited about that. That's coming up in just a few moments. Baptism, but we're also thinking about communion. And so these two elements, these two um, uh, ordinances, and communion, two weeks from today. So November 19th at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, this will be our, our threefold communion service. We invite you to come join us for that. And uh, you can find out more information and sign up online or stop by in the circle at Grace Connect, and there's more information there. So we'd love to see you there for communion as well. One other thing going on is this afternoon is our membership class. So, Intro to Grace, at 4 o'clock this afternoon, we are going to have that. And this, this is for anybody who's wanting to become a member here at the church, uh, but it's also broader than just that. If you have questions about Grace Church, or you wonder why we do some things, or, or how we do some things, if, you, if you've got any of those questions, this is open to any of you to come and join us at 4 o'clock this afternoon uh, to talk through Grace Church. And so, we're very looking forward to that as well. John chapter 11, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Verse 17, that's where we pick it up. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this gift of your word to us. May you write its truths upon our hearts. May you impress them deep into our souls that we would see your Son, Jesus, high and lifted up. We would see him as the resurrection and the life, that we would stake our lives, our eternities upon him. Would you do your work by your word in your people this morning, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Let me be seated. You know, one of the common themes of life seems to be waiting, waiting, waiting for something more to happen. You think about, really, just, just kind of walk through life a little bit and think about the waiting that comes. So, so when you're a kid, okay, you're waiting to start school. You just can't wait to get into school. And then after a few days or maybe even a few weeks, you are waiting for summer break and you cannot wait for school to be out. Then you're waiting to get your driver's license. Then you're waiting to go to college. Then you're waiting to start a career. Then you're waiting to get married. Then you're waiting to have kids. Then you're waiting for your kids to be out of their diapers. And then you're waiting uh, for retirement. You know, so it's just we're waiting for one thing after another after another. And we don't really like to wait for things too much. Um, it's like the old prayer goes, Lord, give me patience, but give it to me right now. And uh, 
That's the way that we are with our lives. We, we don't like waiting. Waiting is a time in between the hopes and the dreams that you have and the questions and the confusion that come in the meantime. Waiting is a hard place to sit. And yet the Lord often brings his people to and leaves them in periods of waiting in the in-between where it can be easy to question his faithfulness, to wonder about his promises, and yet to cling to him by faith. You think about the story of God's people. Adam and Eve, to Adam and Eve was given a promise that there would come a rescuer, a redeemer, a, a child who would, who would save them. And what happens is one of their sons rises up and kills his brother. And Adam and Eve were left waiting for the redeemer they would not live to see. To Noah was the promise that there was coming a flood. And Noah builds an ark. And while he, while he prepares, while he builds it, he saw days turn into years of sunshine with no rain coming. To Abraham was told there's a promise that you're going to have a child, the child of promise. And yet agonizing periods of infertility followed even that promise. Joseph had mighty dreams, and yet he spent years enslaved and in prison. David was told his throne was going to continue forever, and yet he saw under his reign the, the kingdom fracturing and splintering in rebellion. Israel knew there was coming a time where the Lord would bring them out of exile, and yet decade after decade, they did not see the return from exile come. And all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, God's people were waiting for the coming of the Messiah, the seed of the woman, the one who would come and rescue them and save them from their sins and all that plagued them. And yet generation came and generation died, and they did not see the Messiah come. God's people often live in the waiting, in the in-between. And the waiting room can be a lonely place and a hard place. And then when you're in the waiting room, you're just pacing back and forth, and you're anxious and wondering, is there anything I can do? And you realize there's nothing I can do. And the only thing you can do is trust that the doctor in the other room, who you cannot see, is doing something good and right. And in much the same way, the Lord leaves us in the waiting room. He leaves us in periods of our life that we're waiting. And the only thing we can do is trust that the Lord we cannot see is doing some things we cannot see, and what he's doing is good and right. So where we find Martha in our text this morning. In many ways, Martha is in the waiting room. She has not yet seen the fulfillment of God's promises. She has not yet seen the things that she longs for. Her brother has died. We saw that last week. That her brother Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, these three siblings, were dearly loved by Jesus. And Lazarus grows sick, and so they send this message to Jesus, and they say, listen, Jesus, the one whom you love, Lazarus, he's grown ill. And the implication is, you can do something about it, please do. Jesus loved them, so he waited, and as a result, Lazarus died. Jesus did arrive eventually, verse 17, when he came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Jesus did get there. And yet... When he arrives, he finds Martha in a place of grief. She is clinging to hope, but is confused. She's in the in-between. Lazarus has not yet been raised from the dead, but he has been buried. They've, they've attended his funeral, and they haven't seen him walk forth from the tomb. Martha is a woman confused and trying to cling to faith. Verse 17 tells us this. When, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. 
So we're told that what happens here is Jesus is approaching the house and Martha runs out to meet him. Martha has the reputation, if you know some of the other stories in Scripture about Mary and Martha, Martha has the reputation of being always on the go, always moving, always serving, and Mary just sitting there at Jesus' feet. And Martha's rebuked elsewhere for this on-the-go nature, saying, listen, what you need to do is just sit with Jesus. And yet here, notice that it's her on-the-go nature that drives her toward Jesus. Mary remains sitting in the house, and what does Martha do? She runs out to meet him. We don't know why. Maybe she wanted a private audience with Jesus to talk through some of these things first before the crowds got involved. Maybe she heard the Lord was coming, and she just couldn't wait to see him. And so she ran out to meet him. We don't know what drives her there, but we do know what she says to Jesus. In verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. This is a case where I would love to be able to hear how Martha says it. We don't really know how it's supposed to be read. Is it supposed to be read, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died? Or is it, Lord, you know, if you'd been here, you wouldn't be dead. But even now, I trust you. We don't know exactly how this is supposed to be read. This is uh, why um, sometimes tone of voice is so important. You think about written communication or texting. And when you're texting someone, uh, it's a wonderful thing. I'm, I'm so grateful for texting. And yet sometimes you're like, okay, wait, was that supposed to be sarcastic or was that supposed to be serious? Is that a joke or is this like, are we, we really diving deeper? Okay, what, where are we really at? And then sometimes you throw in emojis and you think that's supposed to help, but no one can seem to agree on what those emojis even mean in the first place. And so all of a sudden then you say, well, I, I, would, I could really be helped by hearing the tone of voice or seeing the expression on their face. That's us with Martha here. How is this supposed to be read? We don't exactly know. And it could be, it could be that she's upset with Jesus, that he didn't do anything more. Lord, if you had just been here, he wouldn't have died. It's possible. I tend to think that's probably not the case. I think we should have a kinder, more sympathetic view to our sister here. I think, I think what Martha is saying is she's saying these things from a place of faith, albeit confused faith. She doesn't know why these things have happened. She doesn't get what Jesus is doing, and yet she is clinging to faith, trying to believe what she knows to be true. Lord, if you had only been here, Lazarus wouldn't be dead. Notice that even though this is coming from a place of faith, it doesn't mean Martha is exactly right in how she's thinking. Because what happens is Martha seems to limit what Jesus can do. Notice, Lord, if you had been here. First she said, if you've been here, Right here, you could have done something about it. She seems to think Jesus needs to be right here physically in order to do something about his sickness. She seems to limit him by his geographic proximity. Lord, if you had just been here, right here, you could have done something about it. But you missed your chance. Have you ever been tempted to doubt what God can do in your life? Have you ever been tempted to doubt his power? Have you looked at something in your life, a situation that seems impossible to you, and filtered it through the lens of what you can conceive of as possible? Do we place limits upon Christ as Martha is here? See, Jesus didn't need to be right there physically to do something about it. We had seen earlier in John's gospel, if you remember, that there was a moment where this man comes to Jesus and says, my son is sick. Can you do something? And Jesus speaks a word, and a boy who was miles away in a different town was immediately healed. And you say, okay, that's wonderful. 
Jesus doesn't even be here right now. He doesn't need to be in the same geographic location. He can do whatever he wants at any moment he wants. Martha is limiting Jesus by placing him in this box. But it also goes further than that. If you had been here, in other words, Jesus, you've missed your chance. Too late. You could have done something about it then, but now you can't do anything about it. Have you ever felt like that? That God is a little late in answering your prayers? You know, if you'd just done this a few days ago, that would have been really helpful. If you just answered my prayer a little faster, I wouldn't be in this mess. You know, one of the things that I love, uh, I love doing is uh, when there's something and you're setting up tables or whatever you have to set up to do things, I'm thankful for the amazing team we have here who does that. And one of the things I like to do is try to arrive when there's like one or two tables left to set up. And then I get there, and it's, I get credit for the willingness to, to, to help, and yet I don't really have to do a whole lot. It is wonderful. Um, and uh, I'm obviously joking, but uh, not really. And so um, sometimes we feel that same way with Jesus. You know, Jesus, you kind of left me on my own to do all the work myself, and now you show up? Where were you when I really needed you? You ever feel that way with God? Are you, are you ever in the same situation Martha is in this moment? Doubting that he really can do anything about this, placing limits on him by, based on what you can conceive of him doing, or thinking you're a little late in doing this. Jesus is never late, as Tolkien said, to steal that line. He's never early, he's never late. He comes precisely when he means to come. Friends, what is it in your life right now that seems too impossible for God even to do? What is it in your life? What are the prayers, the longings of your heart? What are the things you're crying out to him for? And maybe you don't even realize it, but subtly, you're placing limits on God's ability, you're placing limits on God's power, and thinking, it's too late for that. Or thinking, well, maybe if he was just here right now, in a different setting, then it would happen. We need to be reminded, like Martha is reminded here, of the power and the authority of Jesus to do as he pleases and to remember that all that he does is good. Timing and geography do not thwart the purposes of God. And it's because, I think H.P. Charles says it well, he says Jesus didn't need to be in a hurry rushing to them because he has just as much power at the cemetery as he does at the hospital. Martha knows Jesus has the power to do something about this, but she underestimates just how much authority Jesus has. Nonetheless, she is clinging to faith in what she does know. She is fighting to believe. Notice that she continues on, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Lord, if you'd been here, you could have done something about it. I know you have the power to do it, but it's a little too late. But even now, I believe you have all authority. Whatever it is that you ask of your father, it will be done. This is the remarkable confidence that she has in Christ. So notice that this is a dear sister who from a place of faith is clinging to faith even while she's confused and even while she doesn't know what's going on. Do you know what that's like? To pray, Lord, the thing that I have longed to see more than anything else I don't see the cries of my heart, what I most desperately want, you're not giving. But I trust you. I trust you. It's one of the hardest things to do in life is when you don't see the prayers answered the way you would like them to. 
where it feels like there's a delay from heaven and where it feels like Christ has not given you your desires that you pray for, even good things that you pray for, to continue to say, Lord, I trust you. It's an easy thing to praise the Lord when things are great. It's far more difficult to praise him when life gets hard. When you see your prayers all be answered, trusting God is easy. When you hear no answer and see no reply, trusting God is the hardest thing for you to do. Spurgeon was the man who was familiar with suffering and sorrow, and he famously said this, remember that to trust God in the light is nothing, but to trust him in the dark is faith. To rest upon God when everything witnesses with God is nothing, but to believe God when everything gives him the lie, that's faith. To believe that all shall go well when outward providences blow softly is any fool's play, but to believe that it must and shall be well when storms and tempests are round about you and you are blown further and further and further from the harbor of your desire, that's a work of grace. By this you shall know whether you're a child of God or not, by seeing whether you can exercise faith in the power of prayer, even when all things forbid you to hope. Maybe that's where some of you are today. You're in the darkness, you're in the grief, you're in the suffering, and everything in your life is is saying, give up your hope in God. He can't do anything about it now. Some of you know what it's like to be in the midst of that boat, and the waves are carrying you further and further and further out to sea, and by this point, you have lost sight of the shore, and the clouds, and the rain, and the wind, that continues on, and you seem further and further and further away from everything you dreamed for, everything you longed for feels like life is one series of hardships after another. You are worn down and tired. You have cried many tears. You have endured sleepless nights, and you have fought to keep believing even when questions without answers on end. And you come to Jesus like Martha, confused, but clinging to faith, fighting to believe. Think about Noah and the ark. It's one thing to believe that God will send a flood when it's pouring rain. It's another thing to believe that God will send a flood when you're building an ark and day after day after day of sunshine and a period of drought. And some of you are are there this morning and you're fighting to believe. You're in the same place as Martha. You are confused and yet saying, Lord, I I trust you, but I don't get it. And in that moment, in that moment, the step of faith is to keep clinging to Christ even amidst those questions. And what, what you're tempted to do in that moment, if, you, if that's where you're at this morning, what you're tempted to do is look at someone else in the church and, you, and they look so joyful and, and happy and it, has, it seems everything, has, their whole life has it put together and you say, well, I, they seem so confident in these things and they seem so joyful in these things and I'm not. And so you come to say, there must be something wrong with me, something wrong with my faith. And yet, here's the reality, friend, that to, 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 to shout with joy when everything in life is great is easy. But to cling to Christ in hope when everything in life seems to be going wrong, is remarkable faith. So keep trusting him, and do not underestimate your Lord. See, Jesus responds to Martha with incredible kindness, as he does to you and I when we turn to him. And Jesus tells her, everything that you longed to see, Martha, you're going to see. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. He speaks to a woman whose entire world has collapsed in upon her, who is filled with grief, who has longed more than anything to see see her brother spared from death. See, all she wanted was to see her loved one live. 
Many of you know what that's like. All I want is to see them live. It's not a bad thing to desire. It's actually a very good thing to desire. That's all she wants. And Jesus meets her in the moment of desperation and despair and tells her, what you desire to see, what you long for, you will see. Your brother will live. Martha doesn't get exactly what she means. Here's how she continues. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Which is true. What we see from Martha in our text is remarkable. She is a resolutely orthodox woman of, of the faith. She is a friend and a follower of Jesus. She has displayed that by reaching out to Jesus in the midst of her trial, not running away from him. She has confessed that Jesus has all power to do whatever he wants, and he could have kept Lazarus from dying. She confesses that Jesus has all authority and will receive anything and whatever he wants from his father. And here she confesses that believers will rise again on the last day. This is a woman of remarkable faith. She knows what she believes. Because even this last point about the resurrection was a point of contention in her day. There was the disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two religious leading, these groups of religious leaders. And what can happen is when we hear the word Pharisee, we get a negative view in mind because they rejected Jesus, which was the wrong call. Don't reject Jesus, right? So, so we can have this negative view in mind. But in their day, here's how people would have viewed them. The people would have viewed the Pharisees as those who are trying to take the Bible literally, seriously, and would have taught. Because the Pharisees believed that the Bible taught there's going to be a resurrection from the dead one day. The Sadducees said, no way, there's not a resurrection. Acts 23 tells us this, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So the Pharisees say there's coming a day where the the dead are going to rise, a resurrection from the dead for all who trust in God. The Sadducees say, no, there's not. So the Sadducees say there is no resurrection from the dead, which is why the corny church saying says they are sad, you see, because they don't think there's any resurrection. Isaiah promised this. He said, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. The Old Testament does promise there is coming a day where those who have died in faith will be raised to life. And Martha believes that. Martha believes that it's true. She believes that one day Lazarus will live. This woman knows a whole lot about her faith. She is orthodox in her confession, turning to the Lord in these things. And yet Jesus asks her, in just a moment, he will ask her, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And if you ask that of Martha, then we should take a look at our hearts as well and say, do I believe this? Do you believe this is true? See, what Jesus is after is something more. She's after something deeper in her heart. Because he doesn't want this truth just to be known. He wants it to be celebrated. The Lord is not just someone to be studied. He is someone to be worshipped. And belief is more than mental assent. It is about heart engagement. I, I, I like how Jonathan Edwards illustrated this. He illustrated it using honey. And he said, listen, uh, we can all agree honey is sweet, so there's a big difference between knowing honey is sweet through your reasoning of it and knowing honey is sweet because you've tasted it yourself. Jesus is after the kind of faith that says, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That's what he's after. When he says, do you believe this? It's because he wants to drive Martha to a deeper reality of tasting the goodness of Christ and say, I, I know this to be true in a deeper way than I ever have before. This has been pressed deep upon my soul like it has not before. What about you? Do you believe this? And could it be that the words of Jesus this morning are intended to drive you to that very same place of knowing this 
in a deeper way than you did before. See, Martha believes there's a resurrection from the dead that's coming. But it seems that her, her, her belief in this was divorced from her hope in the moment. It seems that her knowing a day where Lazarus would rise from the dead didn't really give her much comfort in the meantime. Because it seemed too far off, too distant to really be of much help right now. Could it be that the promises of God are like that for you? God offers these glorious promises, and yet they seem so far out in the future, so distant. Maybe it's even the resurrection from the dead that we look forward to as believers. Maybe it's that one. But whatever promise of God, you say, that's a wonderful promise, and I believe it with all of my heart, and yet it seems so far off that it doesn't really give me much comfort right now. See, a telescope is designed to magnify objects that seem far away. And God gives us these promises to look through the telescope and to see the promises and, and be comforted by them. But what happens is if you turn that telescope around and look through the other end, it makes objects feel far smaller and far further away than they really look. And what happens is God gives us these promises that look at them and magnify them, and this will help comfort you in the meantime. And yet what we do in the midst of our grief when suffering comes, when hardship comes, is we flip that telescope around. We say it looks so far away. It looks so small. How can that really anchor me now? That's where Martha's at. She believes this is true. Doesn't really give her the assurance and comfort in the moment. And Jesus doesn't come rebuking her for this. But Jesus does come with the radical, life-altering statement. That this hope is really not far off at all. Because he's standing right in front of her. Jesus comes to Martha, and he flips everything on his head. He says this, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's a massive statement. Jesus comes to her and says, okay, listen, you're looking forward to the resurrection from the dead, and your hope is not anchored on a day in the future. Your hope is anchored on a person who is standing right in front of her right now. Martha was talking about the resurrection. She did not know she was talking to the resurrection. Martha was longing for the time where she would see her brother live. She did not know that she was seeing right now the life in front of her, who is the Christ. And notice that this hope is only found in Jesus. There is no one and nowhere else we can find this kind of hope in life and in death. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. It's him and him alone who is this hope. And in saying this, he is taking upon himself once more the divine I am. He is saying that he is God in the flesh. He is saying that he is the fulfillment of all the promises in the Old Testament. He is saying that he is what his people most desperately need. He says, Martha, Martha, you're right. There's coming a day where your brother will live. But it's because of me. I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? Martha believes the time for Lazarus to live is coming again. She's looking to a date in the future. We need to shift our assurance off of a date and onto a person and say, it's because of Jesus. It's because the man standing in front of her in that moment. And he says to her, I am the resurrection. And he says to her, I am the life. I am the resurrection. Notice he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He's the resurrection. There's hope even unto death because of him. Even those who die in faith in Christ will live forever with him. Those who die in faith do not die in vain, but await a coming resurrection. Jesus says, though they die, they will live. 
Death does not have the last word in this story of any believer in Jesus. It doesn't have the final word. It doesn't have the last say. Think about Martha thought, Jesus, if you had just been here, you could have kept Lazarus from dying. And he is certainly able to do that. But she needs to realize that this Jesus has the power to keep his people even through death and into life. Those who follow Jesus might still die physically, but they will never die eternally. They will never die spiritually. He has the power to keep his people in life and to keep them in death and to raise them from the dead. Friends, for the believer in Christ, the moment your eyes close in death, they open in the presence of your Savior in glory. And to be present with the Lord where you await one day, the moment where your body will leave the tomb and your soul and body will be joined together again, and you will have a resurrected body never to die again. That is the hope for every single believer, and that can anchor us with confidence here today. You know, Piper says, death is like my car. It gets me where I want to go. And it doesn't mean that we celebrate death. It doesn't mean that we glorify death. It doesn't mean that we rejoice in it. Death is the enemy that Christ came to defeat, but nor, nor do we cower before it in fear, because he has defeated it. And he promises that everyone who trusts in him, though we may die, we will live forever with Jesus. He is the only hope in death. See, everyone dies. It's the hardest and most unavoidable reality in our world. Every single one of us in this room will wind up dead and in the ground at one point. The greatest person you can think of was not able to escape this. For all of our remarkable brilliance and technological advancement and collective wisdom and financial prosperity that have come, there has not been anyone who has figured out a way to keep people from dying, not forever. We can put a man on the moon, we can explore the depths of the ocean, we cannot figure out a way to cheat death. It's unavoidable. But here's what we can avoid, we can avoid thinking about it. This is the way we try to live. We try to live escaping the thought of death. We try to live forgetting that it's ever there. But if, we, if we, we live our life trying not to think about death, then we also don't think about what hope can come after death. We don't think about, well, is there any hope? Is there any life that comes even after death? What we need to hear is Jesus saying, though he die, yet shall he live. There's the hope amidst death. The reason for this hope is because Jesus is the resurrection. You know, it wouldn't be long before Jesus and Lazarus traded places. They'd be in a different tomb, but Jesus would find himself in that tomb, dead. Lazarus alive, Jesus dead. And as Mary and Martha mourned the death of their brother, so Jesus' disciples would be mourning the death of their friend. Jesus found himself in the tomb instead. And Lazarus found himself in the tomb because of sin. The Bible tells us that every one of us have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, the punishment for sin, is death. Jesus found himself in the tomb for a different reason. Not because he himself had sinned, but because his people had sinned. Not because he needed to die, but because he would die for his people. To save them. He didn't deserve death, yet he took it upon himself. Because we sinned, and we needed life. We needed a savior. We needed hope. And Jesus comes, and he places himself in the tomb. He dies for us, for our sins, so that we would live. And then on the third day, Jesus walks right out of the tomb, resurrected to newness of life, and Jesus will never die again. And that's the hope for all who trust in him. That we might still die physically, but we will not die spiritually. The hope we have in the midst of suffering and hardship and even amidst death is that Jesus has gone there before us, and he knows the way.
and he will be with his people in life and in death, bringing us to resurrection life. And notice, he says, I am the resurrection. He also says, I am the life. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He starts off saying, listen, your only hope in death is me. He says, your only hope in life is me. Martha needed to know that the only hope for her brother Lazarus living was Jesus. Martha, Martha also needed to know that her only hope for her, still alive that day, is Jesus. He is the resurrection and he is the life. Really, Lazarus and Martha are in the same spot, desperately dependent on Christ. And the fact that Jesus says both of these things back to back clarifies what he means by this kind of life and death. Because he says this, though he die, and then he says, you'll never die. And you say, well, Jesus, wait a second, make up your mind. Which one is it? And it's both. He has in mind two different kinds of death here. There is a physical death that comes to all people. And he does not lie or deceive his people about this. Jesus doesn't say to us when we're following him, hey, you know what? Um, right? Jesus, Jesus, isn't, Jesus doesn't shy away. He doesn't lie to us about the fact that we will still die, that we will still have suffering, that we will still have, har- have hardship when we follow him. He doesn't deceive us about any of those things. And he does say, listen, you should be far more worried about a second death. The Bible says there is a second death, a spiritual death that is the wages of sin and separation from any enjoyment of God's presence cast into an eternal hell where Christ rules but only in wrath and justice with no sweet relief of his mercy or love or kindness. It is to be in punishment for sins forever as are offenses against an infinite and holy and just God deserve. Jesus says, listen, you may still die physically, but whoever trusts in me will never die spiritually, will never face that second death, but will have eternal life. And we need to know that this is our greatest problem. Fill in the blank. What's your greatest problem? Whatever it is, here's the answer. It's that second death. That's the greatest problem that faces every single one of us in this room is that you and I stand guilty in our sins and deserve that punishment. And what is there, what hope is there to escape that? We spend all of our time thinking about how can I avoid dying physically? And listen, don't necessarily stop doing that, but we need to spend more time thinking, how can I avoid this second death, this spiritual death? How can I avoid that reality? And Jesus comes and says, whoever believes in me, though he die, he's going to live. Whoever believes in me, you might still die physically. You will never die spiritually. There has never been a time where a believer in Jesus has ever died spiritually, and there never will be one. Everyone who trusts in him will be kept by him and given resurrection life in Christ Jesus. That's the promise that he holds out to Martha, and that's the promise that he holds out to you and me this morning. Do you believe this? Because of what Christ has done, we have confidence in life and in death. And for all of us, though we die or though we live, the only anchor for our souls is Christ. Says the catechism famously says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. And he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What is our only comfort in life and in death, friends? It is Christ. 
and Christ alone. The resurrection and the life. And all this comes by faith in him. Do you believe this, he asks. The the way to this life, the way to this kind of eternal life is not found with good deeds or best wishes or great intentions. It does not depend upon what you do or how much you strive and try or how good of a person you are. The road to this kind of life is all of grace through faith. Notice how often in this text Jesus connects these realities to faith. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This comes through faith and faith alone. The fact that he asks this of Martha, do you believe this, means we should ask it of ourselves. Do you really believe this is true? Are you staking your life upon these realities? Are you saying, yes, Jesus, I trust you? Martha did. Here's her response. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Yes, I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe you're the Savior. I believe you're the one who came to rescue me. You say, what does it look like to believe? I like the way one pastor summarized it. He says it like this, that belief has to do with our agreement, with our allegiance, and with our affections. It has to do with our agreement. There are things that you believe, that you profess, that you, uh, that you hold to. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and, and rose again for life. There's things you've got to believe about Christ to be saved. We know who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It's certainly not less than that, but it also goes deeper than that. It has to do with our agreement. It has to do also with our allegiance, meaning we bow the knee to King Jesus. Say, I'm yours. I trust you. I trust your word. I trust your ways more than my own or the ways of other people around me. And I'm following you. You're my king. I'm bowing to you. Use me as you will. It has to do with allegiance, submitting yourself and your life and your dreams and your desires and all those things and submitting it to Jesus and saying, I'm yours. And it has to do with our affections. Said, I love Jesus. He is my greatest treasure, my greatest prize, and my greatest joy. I delight in him. That's what faith is. And this faith is the only means by which the life-saving and life-giving medicine of the grace of God is administered to sin-sick souls who are desperately in need of it. You know, there's a story of the uh, a tightrope walker. I've used this illustration before, but there's a, a guy who would go to these great chasms, these great canyons, and he would set up a tightrope across it, and he would walk across. And people were amazed at this reality. They like, oh, this is wonderful. And he would even sometimes take some volunteers, and he would take them on, the, on his back, and he would walk them over across the other side. And the crowds gathered around, and they were amazed at the, the, the wonders that this man could do. Well, there's, this, there's a famous guy who was... Uh, was just desperate to see this in person. So he traveled a ways, and he came to see this man walk across these canyons on a tightrope. And so he, he's watching him do it, and he's amazed. And you know, he's cheering along with the crowds. And eventually the guy walks over to him, and he says, hey, do you want to hop on my back, and I'll walk you across? And the famous guy, no, 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 thank you for that. I'm fine just watching. Friends, the kind of faith Jesus is after is the kind of faith that says Yes. I'm jumping on board. If you fall, I'm going. If you live, I'm living. It's the kind of, the crowds, the crowds stood by and they watched, they were amazed by Jesus, they were mesmerized by Jesus, they were applauding his wonders and his signs. 
The kind of faith Jesus after, the kind of faith that hops on board and says, Jesus, I'm staking everything that I have upon you. Do you believe this? What kind of faith is yours? Is it a faith that agrees with what we know to be true about Jesus? That bows before him and pledges allegiance to Christ? Submits my life to him? Is it a faith that delights in Jesus as our joy? Is it a faith that sits by and applauds the wonders we see Jesus doing? Or is it a faith that says, I'm hopping on board, and if you die, I'm dying. But if you live, Jesus, and so too will I. Luther famously said this about faith. He says, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. This confidence in God's grace and knowledge of it makes men glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and all his creatures. See what he says? He says, this is a kind of faith that stakes our life on a, a thousand times over on the confidence that Jesus Christ really is who he says he is, that he really did rise from the dead, that he really did defeat death for you and for me, and that all who trust in him will be saved. This is a faith that says, I'm going to stake everything on that a thousand times over. Jesus in Jesus alone is my only hope. He is the resurrection and the life. And Luther says, this kind of faith makes us glad as we rejoice in Jesus. It makes us bold in the face of death and danger, and it makes us happy as we follow Christ and praise him for his goodness toward us. That's the kind of faith he's after. There's a, uh, there's a beautiful children's book um, written about John chapter 11. Uh, Lauren Chandler wrote a book. She called it Goodbye to Goodbyes. She retells the story of Mary and Martha we've been seeing, and um, she, she tells about, um, you know, Martha's in the midst of her grief, in the midst of her pain, in the midst of her sorrow, and she, she um, paraphrases the words of Jesus to Martha, and Jesus says to her, uh, there's coming a day where we will say goodbye to saying goodbyes forever. Many of you know what it's like to say goodbye. All of us do, to some degree or another. Say goodbye to loved ones as they head out the door for the day. Say goodbye to loved ones who move away. Say goodbye to loved ones on their deathbed at a funeral. There's coming a day where, because of Jesus, the resurrection and the life, we will say goodbye to goodbyes. It doesn't mean they've immediately ended, but it does mean there's coming a day where they will. And the hope that anchors our souls amidst these days is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and all who trust with him will live with him forever. Well, we won't have to say goodbye anymore. We won't have the, 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 the enemy of death wrecking havoc on our world anymore. We'll be in the fullness of joy with our Savior, resurrected to newness of life, never to die again. We'll say goodbye to goodbyes and we'll be with Jesus forever. That day is coming, friends, for all who trust in him. There's a pastor I know who says it this way. He says, Jesus bought the right to make things right when he died on the cross. He does have that right, and he is making all things right. So that one day, death will be no more. And we will live with Jesus in resurrected bodies, just like his, never to die again, never to say goodbye again, never to, to, to grieve over the loss of loved ones, never to weep over other tombs. One day we will be with Jesus in glory and we will never part with him. He will be our Lord in the fullness of joy. And this is because Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word given to us.
I pray this morning that you would strengthen our souls in this confidence, this hope, that we would see you and rejoice in you as the giver of life, the resurrection and the life, Lord Jesus. And I pray for those here this morning who do not know this resurrection hope, who are not believing in you, Lord, I pray you would open the eyes of their heart to see you and to trust you as their Lord and their Savior, that they would see that you and you alone have the keys to life and death that you offer to all of us here this morning. You offer to everyone who would believe in you this life. Would you give them eyes to see that? I pray for those who are walking amidst hardship and, and grief and in that waiting period like our dear sister Martha is in this text and are clinging to faith, fighting to believe. Lord, would you meet them there with your kindness and tenderness and strengthen their hope, strengthen their faith in you. And I pray that for all of us, we would be anchored in these realities, anchored in the confidence that we have that because you live, Jesus, we will live with you. That you have triumphed over the grave and that there is nothing that can separate us from your love. We rejoice in this and we rejoice in your work for us. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray and who deserves all glory. Amen.